Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Welcome to another episode of Mormonism Live. Hi, Bill Real. How are you doing? I am exceptional, my friend. I, I saw somebody was posting about the Newark Holy Stones. I'm going back to church on Sunday. That was my friend Donald. Yeah, yeah. Just really quickly, I just want to point out the irony. So Donald, and I put the comments up there at the beginning. Uh, let's see here if I can find it. Uh, he says that we're going to try to point out that Joseph Smith copied stories from the Apocrypha and correlation doesn't mean causation. But then Donald says, these were stones that were found among the Hopewell Indian ruins that had the Ten Commandments written on them. Isn't he making the same argument that correlation means causation in his view? Well, only only a, a benighted person such as yourself, Bill Real, would think that. Because huh. correlation does not mean causation when it hurts Mormonism. Oh, it only right. means it only means causation when it supports Mormonism. What's the panic in somebody when they put five or six comments up before the show even starts? I don't know, but I, I didn't know that you were going to try and tell anybody that Joseph Smith copied any. Well, some things he copied, but we're going to be talking about some definite definite correlations, connections, yeah. similarities. Yeah. But uh, I don't think you're going to yeah. be arguing about causation when it comes to Judith. Are you? No, no. In fact, I think there are places that there are stronger evidence, and we'll touch a few of those, that there's stronger evidence of plagiarism than the book of Judith. I think Judith could be seen as that. I think there's a deep co correlation in thematic elements of the story and in some uh, personal pronouns or whatnot in the story. But I, I'll just leave it up to the viewers to decide which way they think. Um, well, I, I did I want to touch base before we got started, RFM. What is so, this? This is Marriage on a Tightrope t-shirt, and here's one for Rami Umptum Ruminations. Oh, my gosh. And uh, we, had, we, had, we have had a gift shop that we tried to kind of operate ourselves under, under Mormon Discussion Incorporated, but uh, Exmo Shirts, a great ex-Mormon uh, company, Exmo Shirts does a lot of ex-Mormon merchandise, and they've got different categories, but they now have a new category for Mormon Discussion uh, Incorporated, and all of our umbrella of podcasts are there and so you can go to exmoshirts.com and on the left hand side uh, all the way at the bottom there you'll see mormon discussions and folks can and there's only a handful of things in there but he's going to put some mugs on and get some other stuff this gift shop uh gives us a, a a better percentage back the other gift shop that we were using used shopify and some third party company that didn't know us and they were only giving us like two bucks a shirt and uh, in this instance, we're getting significantly more. So, folks, if you do want to support us or you want to just wear uh, merchandise from uh, the various programs that we do, you can go buy a Radio Free Mormon shirt. Um, I've asked them today, by the way, I asked them today to print a shirt that said Radio Free Mormon on the front. And on the back, it says Mormonism makes liars of us all. 
Oh, that's yeah. so sweet. Thank you. Because yeah. I was going to remark that I noticed that there was one of your podcasts that was not represented in the shirts that you showed the audience this evening. I, I, I guess. And I did reach out to him and say, we've got to get a logo for each of them. So uh, he's working on that. This just kind of broke in the last week. So we're we're kind of making sure that store is updated. Another one I told him to do, this one has to do with Maven, who, by the yeah. way, I don't see it. I don't see her in here now. So, um, but there's a shirt uh, that says Mormonism. Uh, I wanted to say Mormonism live on the front. And on the back, it's kind of long, but it'll say, for Helen Mark Kimball's sake, I hope there's a heaven, <laughs> which was oh, what Maven said in the yes. episode about Joseph Smith's polygamy with uh, with uh, Lindsay Hansen Park. Yes, and she said something else about for Joseph Smith's sake. But yeah, I don't I don't know what that one, I forget what that one was. She says, I hope there's a hell. I hope there's a hell <laughs> for I Joseph Smith's sake. Oh, I'll tell you one more little funny thing. Uh, and we're working on a shirt that'll say this, but emancipate your mind. Once a picture of the temple and it is, oh my goodness, I forget what it was. It was um, International House of Handshakes. That's what it was. Oh, yes. I think I've seen <laughs> something like that before. Yeah. So that's kind of funny. All right. I don't know where Maven went. Hopefully she's restarting her computer, but we'll kind of get started without her. She's probably uh, any madly ordering t-shirts as we speak. That's what she's doing probably. Um, any thoughts from you before we begin? No, but I'm very excited about tonight's show because it's one of my favorite things, which is some um, textual analysis and comparison. Yeah, and I thought we'd start by talking for a moment about, uh, I think it was Anthony Miller who coined the phrase eclectic aggregator in regards to Joseph Smith. And it might have been Terrell Givens who said it first, um, but this idea that Joseph Smith, and I, and I, by the way, I agree with this. I think you do too. Hmm. Whatever happened to create the Book of Mormon and to create the other works of sacred text that Joseph Smith did, he, he in some brilliant way collected themes and materials from, uh, from his milieu and, uh, and combined them to create something. In this case, I believe, pseudopigrapha and a lot of theology. But it really is amazing the amount of stuff that we can find traces of in other places. And we'll talk about some of those tonight. But I think it's quite incredible. Oh, I agree. Well, the eclectic part I get, because if you have furniture in your house, that's eclectic, then it's all sorts of different styles and patterns and everything. And that's sort of what Joseph Smith did, uh, at least according to Anthony Miller, according to Terrell Givens, who if he doesn't use the exact expression, says the same thing when he writes about Joseph Smith, that he's taking from here, from here, from all sorts of different places, putting it together and coming up with this new thing called Mormonism. Yeah. So I thought we would start by sharing a handful of places that it feels sort of safe uh, to say that Joseph Smith was borrowing from somewhere in his environment. And the first one I think is an easy go to. This is the Joseph Smith senior dream. And I, I kind of am attached to this particular one, if only because at Family Pond, we have a first edition of that tissue of lies, as Brigham Young uh, called it. You have a first edition. You mean you have yep. one of those that wasn't destroyed on Brigham Young's orders? Yeah. It's, so if I remember the story right, uh, there were Lucy Max Smith, you know, back in Nauvoo, prints this uh, biography of her family, the progenitors of, you know, Lucy Max Smith and, and the life story of Joseph Smith, the prophet. And the production of that book, the first edition, was actually made in two different sizes. There was a bigger one and a smaller one. And the smaller one was what 
the ordinary folks who didn't have access to money. Uh, I'm going to cough here. Give me one second. Take your time. I didn't know that there was two editions. Yeah. And so the there were very few of the big one to begin with, but there were a lot of the smaller one. And when Brigham Young called it a tissue of lies, he ordered the saints to destroy them. And almost all of them ended up being destroyed. There's not that many left. And so this little book, you know, it's the first edition of it. We have it for sale for, I think, $7,500. It's an wow. expensive book. Yeah. That's an expensive it, tissue. It is. It is an expensive tissue of lies. <laughs> so in this dream, I don't want to spend a ton of time on these because we've got a story to get to at the end. But just to point out some of these, the uh, similarities, uh, Joseph Smith Sr., uh, let me say it back up a minute. Lucy Mack Smith records several dreams of Joseph Smith Sr. And one of these dreams is strangely, deeply similar to the Tree of Life story in the Book of Mormon, where Lehi has a vision and Nephi gets the interpretation thereof. And the similarities are just, they're so overwhelming that there's no ifs, ands, or buts that you have two choices. Either A, Joseph, well, I guess you get three. Uh, Lucy Max Smith's memory could be biased based on the fact that she's overwhelmed by the story in the Book of Mormon and she's misremembering her husband's dream. That's one possibility. Second one is that both Joseph Smith Sr. and uh, Nephi and Lehi get the same vision, essentially. And the third one is the most likely rational, reasonable conclusion, which is that Joseph Smith is heavily borrowing from his dad's dream and inserting it into the Book of Mormon. Can I give the a similarities Say that again. There was a fourth alternative, I think. Oh, oh I don't. It, what is it? I don't know that. Oh, is that um, Lucy Max Smith remembered the dream being told by her husband, Joseph Smith Sr., but that the timing is wrong. And he actually told it after the Book of Mormon came forth. Did you cover that mm. one already? No, no. Uh, but then you but again, you have to have more conjecture for that one. Right. Right. The fact is, she puts it in Joseph Smith Sr., the dad's mouth, telling it to the yeah. family prior to. Yeah. The Book of Mormon coming. Like 1816 forth. or something like that. Yeah, much earlier. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things about this, which is so interesting, is that the dream of Joseph Smith Sr. and the dream of Lehi, as recorded in 1 Nephi 8, are so similar that not even the apologists, to my knowledge, are trying to argue, oh, it's just coincidental. Yeah. So just to give some examples, you've got a desolate field representing the world, a narrow path, a river of water a rope running along the bank of the river and it functions in the exact same way that the rod of iron does a tree with dazzling white fruit. Uh, Joseph Smith senior desires that his family should partake of the fruit, a spacious building filled with people who are mocking those who eat the fruit. Joseph Smith senior and his family ignore the mocking. The fruit represents the love of God. The building represents the world. And so, and there are very few dissimilarities, although there are some. Um, and I just don't think dissimilarities prove anything. We talked about that off the air, and we'll talk about that when we get to a big one here uh, with Fair Mormon. But there is the Tree of Life uh, vision in the Book of Mormon, which closely uh, approximates the Joseph Smith Sr. dream. And at least on some level, again, the reasonable rational conclusion here is that Joseph is plagiarizing from dad's dream. There are the options, and I leave it up to anybody to, to make an informed decision about how they want to, to rationalize that. The... Uh, second one is Joseph Smith's Bible revision. And uh, we already have BYU itself. By the way, this is BYU Journal of Undergraduate Research. Uh, Professor Thomas Waymont and then uh, Haley Lamont, who we had on Mormon Discussion years ago, uh, 
Um, they did a bunch. Oh, you're unmuted. I'm sorry. Yes, right. Right after she graduated from BYU and was in the clear and able to talk publicly about her research. Yeah, in fact, we recorded the interview about a week and a half before she graduated and then released it after she did so she wouldn't be in any trouble with the school and get right. her degree. But through the process of her research with Professor Wayman, she essentially lost her testimony over this issue. And what they learned, and you can see it here from my highlighted section, direct borrowing from this source. This is Joseph Smith heavily, I want to say plagiarizing, but they like the term direct borrowing. Uh, from Adam Clark's commentary, which was a Bible commentary that was uh, in contemporary to Joseph Smith's day. It, everybody, it was one of the most popular Bible commentaries, and lots of people had it. And uh, BYU here with Haley Lamont and Thomas Wayman says direct borrowing from this source, meaning the Adam Clark commentary, because they mentioned it just above, has not previously been connected to Smith's translation efforts. And the fundamental question of what Smith meant by the term translation, notice there we have to start changing that word, with respect to his efforts to rework the biblical text can now be considered in light of this new evidence. Which is a very um, nice way of saying that it appears that he was borrowing comments made by Adam Clark and then incorporating those into some places of his Joseph Smith translation, correct? Yeah, and I wanted to, there was one more little quote in this paragraph, and then I wanted to read something from the next one. Um, just not seeing it. But in the next paragraph, our research has re uh, revealed a number of direct parallels. Um, these, they're simply too numerous and explicit to posit happenstance or coincidental overlap. The parallels between the texts number into the hundreds, a number that is well beyond the limits of this paper to discuss. It is so evident that he is taking from Adam Clark's commentary. And then you and I have talked about this numerous times. It's just a note for the, for the viewer. There's always this argument when Joseph's translating that, that there are, the witnesses are never talking about any other sources being used. And so apologists often jump on that to disprove the use of other sources. And we just want to note here that Adam's, Adam Clark's commentary seemingly was used extensively and nobody reported on it. And so it certainly opens up the door that Joseph is using other sources in other productions that he calls translation. And we would then be able to understand that maybe there's another reason why we don't know what other sources are being used. Simply a note. Uh, but just a note that they are in the hundreds. Even the church and uh, Professor Wayman all agree now at this point that rather than the old view that there was a corrupted form of the Bible and parts were lost and Joseph restored it to its perfect form. The reality is that what we now know and the church would agree is that Joseph Smith used Adam Clark's commentary extensively to create meaning and theology uh, and to add and subtract uh, in his uh, revision of the Bible. Would you agree with that? Yes. And I would also add that it's the, the Bible itself is reproduced in this commentary, which is multiple volumes of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And at the top of the page, you have passages from the Bible. And then at the bottom, well, three quarters, it depends on how much, but it's a lot more of the page, is the commentary with footnotes that Adam Clark provided. Now, what's really interesting is that the Bible that Joseph Smith had also had, in addition to the Old and the New Testament, and here's the segue, which I think is about time for, right, Bill? 
Yeah. About 14 books in the middle, which are called the Apocrypha with a capital A, which are, I think it's 14 books. It may be able to vary a little bit around there, but basically 14 books, intertestamental books that are included in the Bible of Joseph Smith's day. It's not going to be in your um, King James version that you get at Deseret book. That's just going to have the old and new testaments, not the Apocrypha in it. I do have an NRSV, which does have the Apocrypha as well. And the interesting thing to me is that when Joseph Smith was going through the Old Testament as part of his Bible translation, which I think he started in 1830, and then it went through 1833 or so by the time he got through the whole Bible, he comes to the Apocrypha. Apparently, after he's done with Malachi, he's done with the Old Testament, he comes to the Apocrypha and he asks the Lord if he should translate or provide commentaries, what we call now, on the Apocrypha. And the Lord answers him, and this is in Doctrine and Covenants. By the way, I love that. You've, you've told us that what the church really means by translation is commentary. <laughs> and that's what, they, I, that's what they say now. You know, amen. When, when I joined the church and I was fascinated by the Joseph Smith translation and I read everything I could about the Joseph Smith translation and the scholars, uh, Robert J. Matthews was the kingpin on that. And he wrote the most on it, but it was always presented as Joseph Smith is restoring plain and precious parts that were removed or lost from the Bible, right? I mean, that right. was the whole presentation. It was a big deal to you and me, yes. It was the, That was what the Joseph Smith translation presented itself as being. But now that we're seeing that that's not the case, now it's changing to being a commentary, which strangely enough is exactly what Adam Clark's Bible commentary is and on which Joseph Smith relied in providing his commentary on the Bible in the Joseph Smith translation. But if we go down to Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 91, I think I'm going from memory. I'm scanning through my notes right now. Doctrine and Covenants, section 91, he asked the Lord, and I'm not sure I even have it in here. So you can look it up. You may know the story. And the Lord says, well, look, there's many things that are true in the Apocrypha, but there's some things that are not. So whoever reads it uh, needs to use the spirit to discern, but you don't have to translate that right now. You get a pass, Joseph, on translating the Apocrypha. And I was talking with Brian Hauglid a couple of years ago, because I don't have the Adam Clark Bible commentary. Um, he does. And I asked him, I said, Brian, can you check your Adam Clark Bible commentary for a second? He said, sure. I said, does the Adam Clark Bible commentary have the Apocrypha in it? And Brian looked and he came back and he says, no, it doesn't. And I said, well, isn't it interesting if Joseph Smith is relying on the Adam Clark Bible commentary to do his Joseph Smith translation, that when he comes to the Apocrypha in his Bible, that doesn't have any commentary from Adam Clark, he doesn't have to translate that. Yeah. If Adam Clark doesn't comment on it, Joseph Smith doesn't want to comment on it. It seems that way. Hmm. That is strange. Good point. I'm glad you brought that up. All right. The and and we will get to the apocrypha, which is kind of the meat of the conversation tonight. Um, but I wanted to pull a few other ones in. The the next one. Let's see what I got here. This is Emanuel Swedenborg. Um, maybe it's Swedenborg. Uh, and I actually have the late war before this, but we'll do this one first. Uh, Emanuel Swedenborg in the uh, Three Kingdoms of Glory. And I want to note some of the things that are said here. Um, let me get rid of this and we can read a little bit of this here. So at this point, one might ask if the notion of heavenly degrees of glory was not uncommon in Joseph Smith's day. But again, this is the doctrine and covenants, revelations in context by the church itself. This is BYU. 
Is that Andrew Hedges' his name? Uh, J.B. Hawes is the writer here, and then they're commenting on the Doctrine and Covenants revelations in context. Andrew Hedges, Spencer Fluman, and Alonzo Gaskill. Okay. But J.B. Hawes is the one writing this section here for the uh, uh, BYU Religious Studies Center. Okay, so a good, a good LDS scholar. Correct. At this point, one might ask if the notion of a heavenly degrees of glory was not uncommon in Joseph Smith's day, why focus so much on the question of Swedenborg's influence? In other words, there's so much of three kingdoms of glory in Joseph Smith's milieu. Why do we focus on trying to find a connection between Emanuel Swedenborg and Joseph Smith's theology? Two questions. Emanuel um, Swedenborg, did he live and write before Joseph Smith? Uh, yes, but let's, I'm trying to think what, if anybody's got his birth date or one of you guys can look it up really quick. I've got too many windows open. I can look myself. it up. Um, but yeah, I, and I, I'll think, keep I know the answer is yes, but I was asking that. Yeah, I know. I know that for sure too, but I don't know the exact years. All right. So he was, oh, have you already gotten that Maven? Um, yes, I'm showing Emanuel Swedenborg, uh, born February 8th, 1688. So, mm. Um, and died uh, March 29th, 1772. So any writing he was doing was completed well before Joseph Smith was born. Yeah, and we get a cool connection here. So I'll read the quotes, and then I want to I want to tell you how we know that Joseph Smith was familiar with this stuff. And actually, the way Joseph Smith words his response, and the response is secondhand, but the way he words his response, we get a pretty good idea that he's deeply intimate with Emanuel Swedenberg's teachings. So it says, at this point, one might ask if the notion of heavenly degrees of glory was not uncommon in Joseph Smith's day, why focus so much on the question of Swedenborg's influence? Two responses seem relevant. First, the prophet apparently mentioned Swedenborg by name during an 1839 conversation with Edward Hunter, a student of Swedenborgism, who later became a Latter-day Saint. Hunter had established a seminary dedicated to the free exchange of religious ideas, and when Joseph Smith stopped at this uh, Nant meal, I don't know what that is, seminary in Pennsylvania, during a return trip from Washington, D.C., Hunter reported this exchange, quote, I asked him if he was acquainted with the Swedenbergers. His answer, I verily believe Emanuel Swedenberg had a view of the world to come, but for the daily food he perished. In other words, I'm so intimately familiar with this that there were concepts that are far-reaching and brilliant and beautiful, but generally, the little stuff from moment to moment, he's missing the mark on, right? Um, and so that kind of an answer says there's some deep, intimate awareness of what Swedenborg was was trying to put across. Right. And when he says that he is aware of Swedenborg's views regarding the world to come, that's talking about heavens and the three heavens that yeah. were posited and taught yeah. by Swedenborg. He's admitting he understands the three kingdoms of glory. Um, I have a connection that, to this. You just let me know when you want me to pop in oh, on that. Oh, yeah. Say that. Say what you want to... Okay, I'm going to go ahead and throw this up on uh, the stream. Mm. So this is um, this is Bryn Athen in Pennsylvania. Um, if you guys remember, that's where I served my mission was uh, the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania mission. So this was in my area for quite a while. And so this is a cathedral. Um, it is Swedenborg. And uh, they have... Um, it's, it's really unique in that they decided to make it very organically. So instead of making everything to the square and all of the windows the same size that would, you know, make construction easy, they made everything completely different. Um, so there's no window that has the same measurements, even like the spires that you see, everything that looks 
even and equal is actually not. Um, let me go. Um, this is just another thing here. I you can see on the right, there's these little uh, curly cues in this door. Like those were all hand done. They're all slightly different. And at the bottom, that's the those are the keys to every single door in that building. They were all made with a completely different lock and mm. a completely different key. They literally made every single thing in that building slightly different sizes. But it looks normal. What a pain to be a janitor. I know, right? Sorry, <laughs> I accidentally took you off there. Anyway, um, so I went on several tours of this building um, from you know people who believe this, and it, I was interested to learn, and I hadn't heard any of this before, that they believe in kind of three heavens. I had they had a pamphlet that I had taken, um, and they also believe in eternal marriage, um, but they just do it like here in this cathedral part. Um, you know, no temple ceremonies or anything, and they just kind of leave out the till death do you part. Um, but there was that and some other similarities that I thought was interesting. And um, actually, I think if I go back, if I recall correctly, um, these are prophets in the stained glass over here. And they guide, again, this is over 10 years ago. But what I remember is them telling me that there was a belief that there would be like one last dispensation with a prophet in it. Um, so of course, my companion and I tried to maybe put out the idea that maybe that was Joseph Smith. Um, did he she was not interested in that our tour guide <laughs> that day. Um, she wasn't picking up what we were putting down, I guess. But anyway, yeah. So you guys I, were working your cause and effect in reverse. Right <laughs> there we go. So uh, yeah, I did think it was interesting, and of course there was kind of a little bit of um, you know, knowing that that he was older, um, and having these three degrees of glory or, or not of glory, but these three different versions of heaven. Um, and I remember at the time I justified it by thinking, you know, if Emmanuel Swedenborg was very close to the Lord, but it just wasn't time for the last dispensation, I thought, you know, there's no reason why God can't also give him, you know, this same vision that that we have, that we know is true. And so uh, that's how I kind of justified it. It was, you know, one of those, um, you know, this actually increases my testimony kind of a thing yeah. where it obviously shouldn't. So that's my story as far as Swedenborg goes. What that's a great the thing we do as Mormons. We 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 essentially hit the mark and then draw a bullseye around it, huh? Yep. It's it's a great story. And I will tell you that if those things and those teachings had been found in an ancient text buried somewhere and not discovered till after Joseph Smith was dead, the apologist would be having a field day with it. But when it shows up in writings of somebody who lived within a century before Joseph Smith in writings that Joseph Smith had access to, all of a sudden the apologists get really quiet. Yeah. Notice the last sentence here. If accurately remembered, this remark generates a whole range of questions. Of course, I don't think they're going to lay out all those questions, but I can think they, of one. Yeah. Yeah. S second, because both men described a heaven that consisted of specific and separate realms, there seems to be a greater qualitative correspondence in their respective views than in the more nebulous many mansions type of heaven found in the writings of other contemporary theologians. Again, this idea of many mansions is in the milieu of Joseph Smith. Um, McDonnell and Lang trace the roots of the modern heaven, at least in part, to Swedenborg and see echoes of that modern heaven in Mormonism. And then the last one, one might then ask, would Latter-day Saints even be troubled if it could be determined that Swedenborgian ideas did influence Joseph Smith? And then just leave it hanging, right? Like, 
what would Latter-day Saints do if this was a direct correlation between uh, Swedenborg's theology and Joseph Smith utilizing it, you know, 50 years later? I have a hypothesis as to when Joseph Smith became aware of these ideas. Uh, when do you think? Sometime between 1829, when he dictates the Book of Mormon, which has very much a one heaven, one hell kind of theology, and February 16th, 1832, when he and Sidney Rigdon receive Section 76, 76. the vision yeah. of the kingdoms of glory. Hmm. So I think I've got it. I think I've narrowed it down to a three year window. Yeah. When he encounters it. Yeah. I think you hit something, uh, the proverbial nail on the head. Uh, so there's that one. The The next one I wanted to go into was the late war. Uh, oh, I don't want that. Let's, where are we at here? Look at all those tabs you have. Oh, I know, there. I know. I got to make sure I get the right thing, though. Let's see. You are such right, a so lazy the, learner. I am. The late war. Uh, there were some that I found here. We'll just go through a, a little bit of them. So the late war, it tells you the chapter of the late war on the left. It tells you the chapter and verse of the Book of Mormon on the right. You get like small band, uh, fought desperately. Um, and some things are just similar. Slaughter was dreadful. They did administer death unto all who opposed them. Uh, 2,000 hardy men, 2,000 of those young men uh, who were called volunteers because they fought freely, um, entered into a covenant, weapons of war, defend their country, fought freely for their country, men of dauntless courage, valiant for the courage. And again, it's not to say the easy out is to say Joseph Smith plagiarized all of these sources. I, I think in some cases he may have. I think in some cases he probably did. And I think in some cases it's the kind of language and thematic elements that are found all throughout Joseph's milieu in various stories and books that were popular in his day. And so he hears these themes, reads these books, hears these things over and over, and there are things that kind of sit in him uh, to kind of pull from when he does the book. And I think that feels like a stretch, but there are so many uh, interesting people throughout uh, world history who have done things along the same kinds of lines um, that I think we ought to at least recognize Joseph Smith's brilliance. Uh, Cause I don't think he's just an uneducated farm boy and uh, to give him some credit. And I think Joseph did soak up a lot of information. You and I, when we're talking about Mormonism, you and I on almost any subject can pull out facts and dates, uh, things that correlate with the topic that we're talking about in ways that I don't think most people can. And I think Joseph Smith had that same kind of ability with the things that he was interested in. That's interesting, an interesting analogy. I will tell you that the late war, for me personally, I don't see this as any kind of a smoking gun at all. It may not even be an unloaded gun, but there yeah. is just the sort of similarity of language and presentation between the two that makes the presentation and language of the Book of Mormon look less unique yeah than it would otherwise correct it is interesting to note you know the book of mormon uses that uh kurloms and qmoms and, uh, and i'm probably pronouncing those wrong but orson pratt how could we tell i don't know right how could we tell i'm pronouncing it wrong <laughs> uh, orson pratt indicated that kurloms were mammoths and he did that in the journal of discourses volume 12 and the late war talks about mammoths and elephants as well um Again, I'll just I'll pull a few more of these out. I'll, I'll skip this one, but there's some other ones that I thought were interesting. Let me make this bigger and go back here. Uh, just a little note here. This was a 
analysis of word usage in various books that would have been contemporary to Joseph Smith, as well as other books he would not have had had access to, or highly unlikely that, that he would have had access to. And as you can see my cursor there at the bottom, a very flat line at the bottom would be an exact match with the Book of Mormon. So if we go up just a little bit, uh, yeah, the very bottom there. So if we go up just a little bit, the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses, two productions that were also by Joseph Smith, have the most similarity to word usage of the Book of Mormon. But the very next ones are the first book of Napoleon, Book of Commandments, which we would expect. First book of Napoleon, and then the late war, both in 1816 Standard Edition, and then they have an 1816, what they called a clean edition. I don't know what that meant. But um, both of those tend to be the next, that, that book tends to be the next book with the closest word usage uh, to the Book of Mormon. And just to give some examples, other examples of it, uh, they both mention the 4th of July, fourth the, the fourth day of the seventh month, which is fourth day of the seventh month, which is uh, Tiankum, the Moravian town. Notice the people of Morianton, a very similar word. And it came to pass the army they were under, uh, whom they called Tecumseh. This one's Tiankum. Um, slew him, slew him. The uh, He uh, fell to the earth. He was dead and had gone the way of all the earth. That's a pretty similar uh two sets of, of quotes from two different people. That, that's a really similar thing. Uh, 2000 hardy men. We talked about this one, valiant for courage, dauntless courage. Uh, they talk about the Americas, the land uh, of gold and silver, all manner of uh, creatures. And here it says animals, which were used for food, which were used for food, right? Talks about the mammoth here. It talks about Kurloms and Kumoms. And again, uh, Orson Pratt says that was mammoths anyway. Uh, they talk about forts that were prepared, uh, swords, uh, weapons of war, great slaughter, immense slaughter, ditches in both. They're slain and they're wounded. They're dead and they're wounded. It's just the similarities are actually quite striking to me. I don't think my rational brain, again, I could be wrong. My rational brain looks at this and the similarities seem stronger than I think apologists would like to argue. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Sure. It came to pass on the 10th day of the eighth month. It came to pass on the 10th day of the month. By the way, when um, people are listening to this without watching the screen, yeah. you're like saying the same phrases over again. And yeah. the first time you're saying it from the late war. And the second time you're saying it from the Book of Mormon, correct? Right. And really, I would suggest if you're listening to this, I really would suggest to go look at the video of our conversation because you're going to see these images on the screen the similar phrases and words are highlighted with, with the same colors. And so you can really quickly point out it. It just seems strange that in these same spots over and over, there are three or four common themes in each section of the writing for both the late war and the book of Mormon. Uh, they build their strongholds on the 10th day of the eighth month um, round about the city. I mean, it's just in, in the same sections of each book is this language that's deeply overlapping. Um, casualties, they talk about uh, the Liahona, by the way, made partly of brass with curious works, like unto a clock, and as it were, a large ball. That was the late war. The Book of Mormon, a round ball of curious workmanship instead of curious works, and it was of fine brass, and within the ball were two spindles. A clock has two spindles, right? Yes, like yeah. the hmm. big hand and the little hand. You got it. 
Uh, weapons and weapons of war were of curious workmanship and weapons of war were exceedingly curious workmanship. That's a strange phrase to find in both books, don't you think? Well, it is curious. They both they both pitched their tents. It came to pass that they gathered together their army, their navy, and the borders of the land. It came to pass that they gathered together all their people, their flocks near the borders of the land. So lots of similarities. I think there's one more. Uh, chief warriors, chief captains, uh, people to rise up, people to rise up against their own children, against their brethren, go with all your might against their city. Yeah. So anyway, there's that. Now I wanted to show something else. This is only tangentially uh, connected, but this is a second site that goes over each of those similarities. You can read those some other place. What is this, my friend? What is that? Well, it looks like the chiasmus. <laughs> It is a chiasmus. This is one in the late war that has 21 pairs. This is similar to Alma 36 in terms of the size of it. And notice, by the way, that no one would argue that the late war is of Hebrew origin. And yet we have this really big uh, chiastic structure in the late war. And so this would be a great example of dis being able to dismiss chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of that, cool. That's disappointing. By the way, I will note that on the page that you just showed, it has the publication date of this book, The Late War, of 1816, correct? Uh, where are you seeing that? Right above and to the right of the chiasmus image you had. Oh, okay. Let's see here. That's important to know. Oh, yeah. Here we go. 1816. Yes. So before Joseph Smith's day. In New York. In New York. Isn't that strange, huh? Uh, so anyway, just the fact that chias, uh, chiasmus does show up in products that are contemporary and are not at all trying to look Hebrew, and uh, they're still uh, still there. Uh, so maybe not as strong of an evidence as we thought. So can that is back? the... Oh, please. While you're going on, can I go back to Swedenborg for just a second? Please. Because uh, Dan Vogel was saying something about um, the three heavens and that uh, Swedenborg didn't teach that. I think that's what his comment said. Anyway, I just went to the uh, Wikipedia page. I am not familiar personally with the works of Emanuel Swedenborg. But according to this, it says that some, including Mormon historian D. Michael Quinn, have argued that various parts of the plan of salvation were influenced in part by Emanuel Swedenborg's book, Heaven and Hell. In Heaven and Hell, Swedenborg wrote that, quote, there are three heavens, unquote, that are, quote, entirely distinct from each other, unquote. I feel like I'm talking in general conference. Swedenborg called the highest heaven, guess what, Bill? The celestial kingdom. Yes, and he also stated that the inhabitants of the three heavens corresponded to the sun, moon, and stars. Hmm. Sound familiar? That's interesting, yeah. Uh, is that 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29, maybe? I think it was. Well, it might be. I just actually closed the window. Or fifteen twenty nine. I think it's somewhere in there. Because that's what uh, uh, Richard Bushman hypothesized, was that both Swedenborg and Joseph Smith were influenced by Paul's talking about one who was caught up to the third heaven. Yeah. That's yep. one place. And then the other place talks about uh, the bodies of those who inhabit the, the heavens, right? The celestial and the terrestrial. Yep. Yep. So there's a really good document there. We'll put the links in with the show and you can go back and read all of this, but there are tons of connections. By the way, Samuel Mitchell, who was the other gentleman that Martin Harris met 
um, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I'm saying that wrong. I think that's right. And there was wasn't there another guy with by the last name of Smith as well. Well, I'm not sure, but you're talking about his trip to New York when he yeah. famously met with mm-hmm. uh, Charles Anton. Charles Anton. There is some suggestion in here that it was Samuel Mitchell who perhaps connected the late war to to Mormonism or whatnot. And uh, just to note that, but we can move on from that. It's, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't read it thoroughly. And so I don't want to comment without being wrong here. So um, I wanted to say the, the last one I wanted to point to, which I think is the most demonstrable of all of them um, is this section from uh, Matthew. And let me, so this is evidence of translation or plagiarism. So this is Joseph Smith having pieces of the Book of Mormon. And this isn't the only one, but this is a really good one to use as an example. There are many places in the Book of Mormon where the language used is coming from a source in the Bible that the Nephites and Lamanites and Lehi and all of those people should not have had access to. And this one's a great example of that. So Mormon, verse 924 Keep in mind that the that Nephi and Lehi and that and their family come over during Old Testament times, and they don't have access to the New Testament. And we actually run into an even more serious problem as we read this. But Mormon 924 and Mark 16, verse 17 and 18 are the exact same language. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. But it's worse than that. It's not that uh, Mormon or Moroni are using language that they shouldn't have had access to, because the argument we could make is that uh, the New Testament author and the uh, Book of Mormon author both are inspired by the Lord to write the same thing. But the problem with that is that Mark 16, uh, 8 is believed by biblical scholars to be the last verse that whoever the author of Mark is, it's the last verse that he actually wrote down. And that later authors added to Mark. And we know this because the earliest manuscripts of Mark uh, end at Mark 16, verse 8. And so everything from verse 9 to verse 20 is not believed to be original to the New Testament or to, I shouldn't say New Testament even, because we don't uh, combine all those works together to later, but the book of Mark itself would have ended at verse 8. Anything after that would not be original to the gospel of Mark. And so we end up with exact wording of what is almost assuredly a later addition uh, to the book of Mark. And that to me, again, if you're going to be a rational thinker, um, there really isn't a healthy way to explain that without making allowances and conjecture. Any thoughts on that one? Right. And so plagiarism is really a loaded word. And so I'm glad that you're not using it for other things up till now. There may be influences, possibly echoes. But here is where we get into the area, I think, that can fairly and reasonably be described as plagiarism. And as you say, the long ending of Mark shows up virtually verbatim in the book of Mormon. There's not going to be anybody who's going to look at both passages and say, no, these are these are not the same. This is just a coincidence. And in fact, there are two other places in the book of Mormon where a similar thing happens. 
And that is in Moroni chapter seven. Let's see here. There was actually a paper that was done on this issue by none other than Sidney B. Sperry, a very faithful, erudite LDS scholar from some decades ago. And this paper was reproduced by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute, and it was printed in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies back in 1995. That's not when it was originally written, but that was republished there. But the title of it is Literary Problems in the Book of Mormon Involving 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and Other New Testament Books. Because without going into all the detail, the problem is, is that you have a lengthy passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that shows up in Moroni chapter 7. And you have another lengthy passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 regarding the gifts of the Spirit that shows up in Moroni chapter 10, the last book in the Book of Mormon. And they are so obviously the same that even Sidney Sperry doesn't try and argue that they're different. He tries to say, well, we have to go to Revelation, that there's no reason that the Lord couldn't reveal the same words to people in the Book of Mormon as he revealed to Paul. But really, I think the more rational explanation is simply that Joseph Smith, when he had the Bible open, and we know he had the Bible open because he's quoting from Isaiah, although the Book of Mormon identifies it as Isaiah, so we cannot call that plagiarism because the citation is given. He quotes the Sermon on the Mount, but once again, I think plagiarism is too strong a word because I believe Jesus says in 3rd Nephi that he's teaching the same things that he taught to his disciples in Jerusalem, made a little bit more problematic by the fact that scholars agree that there never was any Sermon on the Mount that was given. It's just a collection of aggregate and disparate teachings of Jesus that are all kind of glommed together yeah. to create one sermon. But regardless of that, it doesn't qualify as plagiarism because it is cited. But when you get to that long ending of Mark, when you get to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 showing up in the Bible with no, excuse me, in the Book of Mormon, with no attribution, and it's clear that they are virtually identical, I think plagiarism actually is a fair word to use there. Yeah, and as you're pointing out, we've said this multiple times, Sidney Sperry and the incident that you're recounting, he's doing the same thing that apologists have done forever, which is to walk the issue back until it's indiscernible from a fraud, right? When you when you enact a catalyst theory, which is the same idea here with this, you are essentially saying, I know it looks like a fraud, but if we just make the allowance that uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from each other, that Heavenly Father at two different times is giving two different prophets the exact same quote to say. Um, you essentially, if it is a fraud, you've essentially given yourself an out to make it at least have room for a faithful view, but you make it impossible for anybody to discern the difference between a fraud and a faithful uh, conclusion because they look exactly the same. Yeah, I think translation digs Mormonism into a hole and revelation gets you out free again. Yeah, look at that. Which is why they're now in the middle of changing the word translation to revelation. Yes. Huh. Good job. All right. So the uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about. So those were five examples of deep similarities, perhaps thematic borrowing of some sort, or at least awareness in Joseph Smith's mind. And I think at least a couple examples in the instance of the Joseph Smith senior dream 
and uh, the ones we're talking about right now with terms of scriptures in the Bible that are also in the Book of Mormon that shouldn't really be there. Uh, those similarities shouldn't exist, um, not without, again, adding a ton of conjecture. Those seem to be more like plagiarism to me. And if we go from there, I want to make the argument that Joseph Smith absolutely had use of the Apocrypha. And the easiest way to do that is just to go to an LDS uh, source. Um, this is uh, Doctrine and Covenant Student Manual, Section 91, the Apocrypha, uh, right here. The Bible from which he was making his corrections contained the Apocrypha. That's on its own telling, at least by the time 1833 happens, Joseph Smith has a Bible that has the Apocrypha in it, but it's really much worse than that. So here's the data. Uh, Joseph Smith purchased a Bible in the late 1820s. Uh, Joseph Smith family Bible was an 1828 version with the Apocrypha, and even the LDS Church admits he was using it when he created his Joseph Smith translation. Um, he also later on, I think, buys an 1831 copy uh, of the Bible that also has the Apocrypha in it. So For the JST. The, yes. What? Say that again? For the JST. Yes. So he has at least uh, in the 1820s through, he has at, at any given moment, he has one, and at sometimes he has two Bibles that both have the Apocrypha in them. Um, and we can see that too, by the way, from this here, Joseph Smith family Bible goes on sale. And so, um, let's see here locked up in a safe. He said in 1831 edition of the Bible was originally purchased by Joseph Smith when the family lived in Kirtland. Uh, and they talk about in this article, how it had the Apocrypha in it. And so we know that that is the case. Um, so we know Joseph Smith had, uh, the Apocrypha available to him. As you pointed out, Adam Clark decides not to give a commentary on it. So Joseph Smith um, tends to want to stay away from giving his commentary on it, which I thought was a fabulous point made by you. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to say before we get into the meat of this. The surviving evidence favors the conclusion that Joseph Smith was influenced directly by the Apocrypha. As a reader of the Bible, Joseph would have encountered the Apocrypha during personal or family reading of the Bible. Those experiences are now rather difficult to trace, but the presence of several names in the Book of Mormon that have parallels to unique names in the Apocrypha suggest that these apocryphal names may have influenced Joseph in some way. These names, these places, these events might have become part of Joseph's vocabulary, surfacing perhaps randomly in the translation of the Book of Mormon. Again, there's a lot of subjection or uh, conjecture there. But at the very least, we have to own that from about 1828 or 1829 forward, Joseph Smith is using a Bible that has the Apocrypha in it. Uh, any thoughts there before I continue? You're, you're, you're muted again. Sorry, my friend. You're still muted. Dang it. There we go. Okay, sorry, sorry. Thank you. No, just that when you're saying there's a lot of conjecture there, what I hear is careful scholarly language. That's yeah. saying, hey, this is an ironclad, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting uh, connections and similarities. Yeah. Now I want to start with the questions already been asked. By the way, we're not we're not treading new ground. I didn't find this in the last couple of weeks and decide I wanted to talk about it. Rather, this issue has been around, and we know that because, for instance, if we go to Fair LDS now, I think it was Fair 
latterdaysaints.org. So it used to be Fair LDS, then it became Fair, then it became Fair Mormon, and now it's Fair Latter-day Saints. Um, so they changed their names about as much as I changed my underwear. Hopefully I changed mine a little more, but but it's close. So the question here, did Joseph Smith create the story of Nephi and Laban by plagiarizing concepts and phrases from the story of Judith and Holofernes in the Apocrypha? I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um Oliver Cowdery purchased a Bible containing the Apocrypha in October 1829. By the way, there's Fair admitting the same thing, that Joseph Smith and the early church were using at the forefront a Bible that contained the Apocrypha from at least 1829 on. And maybe actually there's some debate about whether it was October 1828 or October 1829, um, after the Book of Mormon was already at press. Uh, in order to support these claims, I just want to note this. In order to support these claims, it would be necessary for Joseph to have obtained a Bible containing the Apocrypha during the period of translation. It is known that Oliver Cowdery purchased a Bible in October 1829. However, the Book of Mormon was already at press by this time, with the copyright being registered on 11 June 1829. We do know that Joseph had a Bible containing the Apocrypha in 1833, during the time he produced the Joseph Smith translation. Doctrine and Covenants section 91 was given to Joseph specifically in response to his question as to whether or not he ought to revise the Apocrypha. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to at least side with Fair and say there is some debate about whether Joseph Smith would have had access to the Apocrypha at the very time that he is writing out the story of uh, Laban being uh, beheaded. By the way, we should note here, that while we read the Book of Mormon starting with the Book of Nephi, uh, the first and second Book of Nephi, the reality is that we understand the way the translation worked is 116 pages, it's lost, Joseph Smith picks up after that, finishes the Book of Mormon, and then the very last thing that he is translating is the first and second Book of Nephi and the next couple of things up until whatever, Omner and Omni, correct? Yeah, I don't know about Omner, but yes. Yeah. Jacob okay. Venus, Jeremiah. That the translation of the first and second book of Nephi would have come at the end of the translation. Right, and the you end. know who we can thank for coming up with that theory, which is generally accepted among LDS scholars? Is it Skousen? Brent Metcalf, baby. Ooh, look at that. Brent Metcalf. Hmm. On those the show lazy, last week with Dan those, Vogel. Those lazy learners, huh? So uh, just to note that, because I think that's important to this conversation, um, because again, there is some debate whether it's 1829 or 1828. And I'm, sure the apologists, and I'm sure the apologists want to have it after 1829. And But when you get to 1829 versus 1831, you're cutting it pretty close there, I got to tell you. And the similarities yeah. tend to persuade some people that, yeah, it's pretty obvious that he was aware of the Apocrypha and had read them prior to his translation of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, again, the argument, too, is that Joseph Smith growing up had a Bible familiar with the Apocrypha itself. We can't prove that, but again, that seems to be the, a reasonable conclusion based on what Bibles were sold at that time, what they contained, at what point did uh, the Catholic Church and some of the Protestant churches begin to see the Apocrypha as not useful or not to have it around. And, and so that's another argument for another day, but at least to note it. And that's Notice, really the, and I think that's really the Protestants. The Catholics continue to print their Bible with the Apocrypha, I believe. In it, yeah, kind of as a separate, 
little less weight to it, but it's there, correct? Yeah, it's uh, the Apocrypha is not considered as authoritative as the Old Testament or the New Testament, by which I understand is meant that it's useful for reading and for uh, spiritual understanding, but that no doctrines should be based upon the writings of the Apocrypha if they're not found anywhere else in the Bible. Yeah, I will say before we get into the meat of this, I didn't go and read the book of Judith all the way through. I didn't go and read first Maccabees or second Maccabees. I really don't have an interest in sharing with our audience tonight, the full gist of that story. If you did, you're welcome to share it. But before you do, I want to, I want to ask you a question. Are you talking to me? I am. I'm talking to you. Oh, okay. So fair Mormon says that the story of Judith and Holofernes and the story of Nephi and Laban actually have more dissimilarities than parallels. The the two stories, essentially, they want to focus on the dissimilarities. So in their website, they go through and list things that are different. And it's strange because some of the things they list, it's like the, the other story has the exact opposite. So for instance, does not intend to kill Laban with the intent to kill Holofernes, right? And I want to ask you, RFM. That's so, that's so different, Bill. That's completely I know. different. I know. I want to ask you, when if you were going to plagiarize mm. something for a project at school, a report, you're going to copy from a, a book directly, because you're a smart guy, how would you carry that out? I am so smart that, you know, I already did this. I mean, I did that in high school, right? And I think yeah. I've told the story once, mm-hmm. but the whole deal is that I read this book, this little short story called The Monkey's Paw, and everybody should know what The Monkey's Paw is. I had never heard of it before, but I was fascinated by this monkey's paw, right? And of course, the guy gets three wishes, and the first wish sort of gets wasted on $10 coming in the mail. And then the second wish has to do with, what does the second wish have to do with? Oh, yeah, because their son, the son of the parents, right, gets killed in a horrible industrial accident. And then uh, his mother wishes, you know, it's there it's such grief, wishes him back from the grave. And it's a dark and stormy night. And they start hearing some lumbering thing shuffling up the sidewalk outside the house. And the wind is howling and the storm is raging and it's coming up the front steps. And then it's banging on the door and the mother rushes to open the door. And the father, who has a lick of sense, grabs up the monkey's paw, uses the third wish to wish his son back in the grave. And the mother opens the door to greet her son, and there's nothing there. Mm. Yeah, so it's creepy. I'm getting chills just even, you know, talking about it. But that's the monkey's paw. So I loved it, right? I didn't know it was one of the most famous short stories in, like, history. But I've got to do an assignment in my English class, 11th grade. Mrs. Randalls was the teacher. And uh, so I write a story that is the monkey's paw. But, (laughs) hey, I wasn't born yesterday. I'm not going to write it about a monkey's paw. I'm going to change it and I'm going to make it a strange hexagonal black stone with curious uh, carvings in it. And that's what I did. So it's the same story, right? But I put this rock in there and I I was shocked and chagrined when I got the paperback from the teacher and it had, eh, it didn't have an A, it might've been a B, but at the end, she writes this little note in red ink, right? Hmm, this story, excuse me, this story sounds strangely familiar. And I just looked at that in the library and I went, oh, busted. 
Would would the excuse of the dissimilarities have held up for you? Well, no, not at all. Because I mean, obviously, you're going to take some things and change them a little bit, yeah. right? In order to Joseph avoid- Smith wasn't, you know, he's no, he's no, uh, he's no dodo. He's read a few good books. He didn't go to school, but he did read a few good books. He's no dodo. No, he's not. And I think he was at least <laughs> as smart as I was in eleventh grade. Yeah. So uh, to judge a plagiarism on the dissimilarities is not how anybody judges a plagiarism, is it? No, but the the deal is also that that dissimilarity is the same thing, just in reverse with a nod in it, right? Yeah, right. That, if it's the opposite, right. Yeah, Nephi, yeah, Nephi does not intend to kill Laban, right? Even though yeah. those words are not in the story, by the way, that's a synopsis of the story. But yeah. Judith enters that camp to, with the intent to kill Holofernes. By the way, I can tell you the similarity in a nutshell, right? I think we all know that Nephi finds uh kills Laban while he's drunk and that Laban is a military commander he's a captain I think of was it 50 I think that's what it is he's a military commander and Nephi kills him by cutting his head off with his own sword correct yeah he's guard he's the guard of the, he he kind of operates the treasury right he's in charge of records or at least they're in his care right and and yeah. and you and and that for my my position right now, I'm just putting that to the side and just saying military commander, drunk, cut off head, own sword. With his own sword. Judith, yeah. Judith cuts off the head of Holofernes, a military commander who is drunk with his own sword. No similarity at all. Love it. Um, so let's get into some of these similarities. Maybe I'm going to let you take, I'll take mine down. And if you want to put yours up, and we'll go over some of these. Some of these I'm just, we'll look at specifically. And then others of these, I'll just kind of read kind of a caption and Maven might have images for those ones, but we'll kind of move through those ones quickly. Um, both of them use the word Nephi. By the way, we have to pause here for a moment. If Maven, hang on a second. I'm sorry, Bill. that's Maccabees. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. So, uh, so we're using three books here. There's the book of Judith in the Apocrypha. There's also 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees, yeah. and uh, the similarities are within those three books compared to 1st Nephi. And so in this particular, um, this is 2nd uh, Maccabees, chapter 1, verse 36. They both mention the name Nephi. Now, if you're looking at the screen right now, you'll notice that it doesn't say Nephi, and we just want to note that that is because this is a revised translation. And the name Nephi has been changed to Naphtha. Um, but if you go back to older editions, um, the ones that Joseph Smith had, for instance, Maven just put it up on the screen. This, And, and we know this, by the way, this is the edition that uh, Joseph Smith would have had access to. It absolutely would have called uh, the place Nephi. Um, so we have Nephi as a name used in um, 2nd Maccabees chapter 1, verse 36. Obviously, Nephi is a major character uh, in the Book of Mormon. So there's and, one of them. And not only is the name Nephi a person's name in the Book of Mormon, it is also the name of a place in the Book of Mormon. Is that what you're going to next? Uh, let me see here. Yeah, so the same idea. Uh, it's the place. So it, there we have another one that does the same thing, Maven. I don't know. Was that in? That's okay. Maccabees? Second Maccabees one thirty four thirty six. So it's right there above. Uh, made it holy, but again, maybe this translation doesn't have it. 
So we can skip to the third one. I think our As audience point- is generally aware of, <laughs> of the land of Nephi in the Book of Mormon, that it is also a place name. And by the way, the naphtha is the connection to the word that's the 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 chemical that's easily uh, incendiary, you know, the, the gas that you can blow up. And so I wanted to at least point out that the word Nephi, at least in the Apocrypha, is not necessarily an Egyptian word, but rather it's a reference to this explosion kind of gas. And um, there's there's several discussions online if you want to go look up uh, Nepathar or Naphtha and go see where the root of that word comes from. Um, the third one I wanted to point out is that the name Laban occurs in both Judith and in the Book of Mormon. So here we have uh, Judith chapter 8, verse 26. Uh, Laban, his mother's brother. And then, of course, we understand, you know, Nephi, that Laban is the person who has the record. Uh, Both Nephi and Judith were very devout servants of the Lord. Uh, Both stories speak of a wicked man who wanted to destroy God's people. In both cases, the people were in great fear. Both Nephi and Judith counseled their associates to be strong. And then here's one we'll put up on the screen. Both claim that God's strength did not depend on numbers. So here we have your strength is not in numbers, nor does your might depend on the powerful. You are God of the lowly, helper of those little accountants, supporter of the weak, protector of those in despair, savior of those without hope. And it came to pass, that was the Book of Mormon verse. It came to pass that I spake unto my brethren saying, let us go again unto Jerusalem and let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord, for he is mightier than all the earth. Then why not mightier than Laban and his 50, or even than his tens of thousands? That first verse you quoted was from where in the Apocrypha? Is that Judith? That is Judith chapter 9, verse 11. Okay. By the way, just for the record, Laban, of course, is also in the Bible. He's the father of Leah and Rachel. Yeah. So it's not the only place Joseph could have gotten that name, other than maybe Revelation. Right, and Lehi does not show up in the Apocrypha, but does show up in the book of Judges and the famous story of Samson picking up the jawbone of an ass and laying waste to all the Philistines, Lehi itself being another place name and it being a play on words because Lehi in Hebrew means jawbone. Yeah. Uh, Both Nephi and his brethren and Judith and her maid went on a secret mission for the Lord. Uh, In both cases, the wicked man was delivered into the hands of the servant of the Lord. Uh, Here's one we'll put up. In both cases, the wicked man was drunk. So Judith was left alone in the tent with Holofernes, who lay sprawled on his bed, for he was drunk with wine. Nevertheless, I went forth, and I came near unto the house of Laban. I beheld a man, and he had fallen to the earth before me, for he was drunken with wine. Um, next one we'll also put up in both cases, the servant of the Lord took hold of the wicked man's weapon. So this is Judith chapter 13, verse six. Uh, she went to the bedpost near the head of Holofernes and taking his sword from it, she drew close to the bed, grasped the hair of his head and said, strengthen me this day, Lord God of Israel. And then Nephi says, nevertheless, um, Sorry, and I beheld his sword, and I drew it forth from the sheath thereof. In the hilt thereof was a pure gold. By the way, it's dark outside. It is strange that Nephi notices how nice the sword is, isn't it? Oh, it's very nice. I've commented on that elsewhere, which I won't go into now. Yeah, yeah. by the way, I'll just say, I, as I prepared this 
conversation tonight, I I ran into I think what we're talking about. So oh, yeah? I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Okay. I was I was tickled when I saw it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome, my friend. Um, so both in both instances, the uh, hero of the story takes the sword from the drunken fallen person and then uh, cuts off their head, right? In both cases, the servant of the Lord took hold of the wicked man's hair. In both cases, uh, the wicked man's head was cut off with his own weapon. Mm. In both cases, the servant of the Lord returned to those who were waiting without being caught. Uh, both Nephi and Judith made off with some of the wicked man's possessions. When the people learned of the success of the mission, they rejoiced in both stories. In both cases, the people offered burnt offerings of the Lord. We'll show this one too. Uh, Judah 16, verse 18, and 1 Nephi 5, 9. Uh, in the Apocrypha, it says, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they worshiped God. And as soon as the people were purified, they offered their burnt offerings, their voluntary offerings and donations. Book of Mormon says, and it came to pass, they did rejoice exceedingly and did offer sacrifice and burnt offerings unto the Lord. And they gave thanks unto the God of Israel. Very interesting. You know, the backyard professor is saying that the hilt glowed in the dark, and that's how he knew it was gold. I think the backyard professor is suggesting that perhaps orcs were in the vicinity. I'm going to suggest that in the dark, you you would have a hard time knowing whether it's real gold. But we should come to expect that. Moroni doesn't seem to know what gold is either. It could have been Tambaga or some other alloy, but he seems to think the plates were made of gold. Yeah, right. That's a good point. So there's a lot of Mormon prophets who struggle to understand precious metals. <laughs> like Ziff. They'd make horrible pawnbrokers, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, of course yeah. they would. And you could yeah. tell us about that. <laughs> Just the fake gold that comes in. And, uh, you know, it sounds like uh, both Nephi and Moroni might fall for it. Were you done with the connections between Judith and Nephi? Uh, no, I've got a couple others here. Okay, go let's ahead. go to this one. This is both Nephi and Judith use a similar expression, uh, tens of thousands. And so here we go. This is uh, 1 Nephi 4, 1 and Judith 16, 4. And uh, 16, 4, uh, Assur came out of the mountains from the north. He came with tens of thousands of his army. We have to use this one because the other, the other uh, source for Judith was actually missing this verse for whatever reason. Uh, but with tens of thousands of his army, and then notice uh, the very bottom of verse one in chapter four, or even then his tens of thousands. So you have this full phrase being used. Now, um, my understanding is that that's a significant number. And I, I'm going off memory here, but I think 10,000 was the highest number that the Greeks had. So they didn't have a million. They had 10,000 as the, their top number. They could say tens of thousands. And that actually that Greek word for tens of thousands is our word myriad. Yeah. Simply meaning a lot, a whole lot of people, right? Yeah. Tens of thousands. Yeah. Anything above 10,000 was tens of thousands. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, both dwelt in tents. Uh, we've got just a couple more. So we'll go to this one, um, which is in both first Nephi and Judith, we find the word, three days. Uh, we also find valley and to the tent of. Uh, this is First Nephi chapter 2, verses 6, and chapter 3, 
uh, verse 1, and then Judith chapter 10, verse 11, verse 17, and chapter 12, verse 7. And so again, you have the phrase three days, you have the word valley, and the exact phrase of to the tent of. Um, and then we'll do, um, let me read off a few more. In both First Nephi and uh, Judith, we find uh, in both accounts, the servant of the Lord changes apparel. So you see that up on the screen right now. And if you're if you're listening to this, you're watching it, I'll say watching it because listening, you're not seeing any of this. But if you're watching it, hit pause. Uh, feel free to read these. Um, both Nephi and Judith use trickery to obtain the desired result. Both Laban and Holofernes were slain while others were sleeping. Uh, both First Nephi and the book of Judith contain a similar expression, left gold and silver and, that's First Nephi 3.16 and Judith 8.17. So you see silver, I left her gold and silver, and then gold and silver, mm -hmm. uh, and all manner of other things. And they're also talking about all manner of other things, although they use a different set of words to explain that. Um, the very first verse in 2 Maccabees mentions the Jews in Egypt. The second verse in the Book of Mormon contains Nephi's incredible statement that the book would be written in the Egyptian language. The letter mentioned in the Apocrypha may have led Joseph Smith to conclude that it would have been acceptable to claim his book of sacred scripture was written in Egyptian or better yet reformed Egyptian. Right. He says the learning of the, the language of the Egyptians and the learning of the Jews is what Nephi says, right? Yeah. And, uh, and in the Maccabees instance, the brethren, the Jews that be at Jerusalem in the land of Judea wish unto the brethren, the Jews that are throughout Egypt, health and peace. So he would have, at least if he read this, he would have known there was a connection between the Jews being in Egypt and being at least there living and hence likely present with their, um, their, their society and their culture. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Um, second verse of Book of Mormon, Nephi says he's going to make a record, speaks of some records, which told of a commandment given by Jeremy, the prophet, a three word parallels found in the records uh, in the first chapter of the Book of Mormon, Nephi says he's going to make an abridgment of his record. This is suspiciously like a portion of Second Maccabees. There's an interesting three-word parallel in the two accounts. Make an abridgment. Make an abridgment. Um, and again, notice if you see a difference on the screen in the Apocrypha section, it's simply a revised translation issue. If you go back to the original, it does say the thing I'm claiming it says. Uh, but make an abridgment is the same in both stories. Uh, both First Nephi and Maccabees refer to a treasury, plates or tables, and of brass, um, and the word commanded. And so those are some interesting similarities that are very close to each other. Um, and two more, and then I will step away here. The reader will remember that Second Maccabees chapter 3 contains a story about the treasury in Jerusalem and Heliodorus' attempt to plunder its contents. Laban's treasury was also in Jerusalem. Both Nephi, uh, let's just go down here. Where are you hiding? Both uh, Nephi and Heliodorus had to travel to Jerusalem in their at attempt, sorry, in their attempt to obtain access to that treasury. And then lastly, both, La uh, both Laban 
and Heliodorus were brought to the ground. Uh, so those are just common themes. And there's a lot of them. And again, I'm not saying that it's plagiarism, but there are enough similarities that it should at least cause us some pause and we should spend some time maybe wrestling with whether there's enough there um, to see some overlap that Joseph might have incorporated themes from the Apocrypha uh, into his work. And it's not just um, it's not just here. As we're pointing out, there's other places, but uh, Book of Abraham, you've talked about on many occasions, uh, places where Joseph Smith is borrowing from, uh, it seems to or appears to be borrowing from Adam Clark's commentary, and then it's either the book of Jasher or the book of Joseph, one of the two that Joseph is using. Josephus. Yeah, Joseph, yeah. sorry, Josephus. And then um, the book of Moses uh, borrows heavily from Matthew and Luke, both themes as well as uh, word usage in certain quotes. And so it seems as though throughout Joseph Smith's translation productions, there is a lot of overlap with materials that were contemporary uh, to his milieu. Very good. Well, Any you other know, thoughts? Yes, Moses supposes his toeses are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. More to the subject, one of the things that's interesting about Judith, and by the way, I'm going from my nice red Bible, which gave certain people absolute fits when I would bring this in to teach gospel doctrine class from 2006 to 2010 when we, when we were on the Old and the New Testaments. But they have introductions to the different books, which are then translated by the different scholars. And in the translation, excuse me, the introduction to Judith, there's something really interesting that happens when she goes in and hacks off poor Holofernes' head, which is that she sneaks into his camp and then sneaks out without getting caught. Okay. And this is what it says in the introduction. Uh, Judith, a Jewish widow, so beguiles Holofernes, because she is a hottie, the invincible head of the Assyrian army, that's Holofernes, and all his servants and soldiers, that she is able to assassinate him in the middle of his camp and sneak away without being caught. Does that sound like anybody in the Book of Mormon to you, Bill? Um, yes, only because you were talking about this story earlier, but I don't remember. Was it, <laughs> was it, was it Tiankum? Yeah. Tiankum's the one in the Book of Mormon who sneaks into the enemy camp and with his trusty rope and spear and kills Amalekiah in his tent and then sneaks away without being caught. Later, he tries the same trick with Amalekiah's brother, who has succeeded him as the leader of the enemy forces. And apparently, Amaron makes a noise when he's being killed and wakes up some people. And that was the end of Tiankum. So I think that's really interesting. There's a Mormon joke about Tiankum, but I won't repeat it here. There is? There is. I'll. Yeah, I won't. But people can look it up. You can look heard, up Mormon joke and Tiankum. Really? I've heard a story about Ammon. You know how many... Uh, of the arms of the of the Lamanites at the waters of Sebus, right? Uh, that he brought back to the Lamanite king. Mm -mm. An armful. An armful. Look at that. Okay. I hope okay. the one. I hope the joke with Tiankum is like more humorous. But it, it is. But it's a little adult, so I won't. I won't share it here. Oh, okay. Well, maybe after the show. I don't want to hurt our PG thirteen rating. <laughs> By the way, here's the thing: is that these connections, these. Uh, similarities between different books they're they're not as bill has said conclusive of plagiarism but these are the kinds of things that bible scholars look at and sometimes they'll call them echoes 
of another book, that there may indeed be a relationship between two different books. And a similar thing happens with the book of Matthew in chapter 22. And as most Mormons know, there's a story there about Jesus saying that in heaven, they are neither married nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels in heaven. Well, the story that leads up to that is about the Sadducees coming before him and giving them, him this strange hypothetical, which you may recall. Um, let me see here if I can find it. Or I could just synopsize it. I think everybody here knows what it is. Let's see. Verse 26 in chapter 22. No, this is starts in 25. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died childless, leaving the widow to his brother. So no children, right? The second did the same, so also the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection, then, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all of them had married her. That was the hypothetical they put to Jesus. And what it is noted in here, and this is the NRSV again, in the footnotes is down to the seventh, this woman who's married to seven husbands, it says, echoes Tobit chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. And Tobit is another book in the Apocrypha. And I just want to show you or read to you what it is that it says there and why it is that this particular scholar sees a potential echo. What chapter between, is that? Tobit chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Do you have it there? Uh, no, go ahead, go ahead and read it. I'm just trying to find it here. Oh, okay. On the same day at Ekbatana in Media, or Media, whatever it is, it also happened that Sarah, she's the protagonist in this story, that Sarah, the daughter of Ragwell, was reproached by one of her father's maids. You know why? For she had been married to seven husbands. And the wicked demon Asmodeus, that's not Amadeus, we're not talking Mozart, we're talking Asmodeus, the demon, had killed each of them before they had been with her as is customary for wives. So they had not consummated the relationship, ergo, no children, as it says in Matthew. And so the maid said to her, you are the one who kills your husband. So she gets falsely accused of killing her husband. She's like the black widow. First she mates, then she kills. Or in this case, first she doesn't mate, but she kills anyway. But she's innocent. And it goes on to talk about how she's innocent and I think is um, uh, vindicated of that charge. But that's the, the echo that this scholar sees in the hypothetical brought by the Sadducees to Jesus in Matthew 22. So what you're doing here and what we're doing tonight is very common in biblical scholarly circles. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is a causation between the two, but there certainly is an echo there, and there may indeed be a reliance upon that story and it being transferred into the New Testament in Matthew chapter 20 and 2. So those are two things. There was one other thing I wanted to say because I actually just thought of it while you were talking, Bill. I'm so excited. Yes. There is a name that appears in LDS scripture that does not appear in the Bible, but does appear in the Apocrypha. And it's an unusual name. It's the name of an angel. And I'm not talking about the Book of Mormon. I'm talking about the Doctrine and Covenants. Doctrine and Covenants, section 128, verse 21, which all of a sudden, and without any context whatsoever or any backstory, I mean, in Mormonism, we know about Moroni, we know about Gabriel, we know about Michael, but all of a sudden, into the mix comes an angel named Raphael. 
Do you remember that verse, Bill? No, but isn't Raphael supposed to be Noah? No, no, that's Gabriel. Well, that's Gabriel. Sorry. That's okay. I don't know who I don't know who Raphael is, but yeah, you've got well, no nobody does. Raphael. Nobody has any idea because there's no backstory. He just shows I know he's right a ninja here. turtle. Well, I, but yes. That's... And what are his weapons? Uh, um, the the two little swords, little daggers. I think a, you're a right. Stop, I don't know. <laughs> I Sith, asked the question uh, no, not knowing I, what the answer know. is, but um, okay, I think you're probably right. But anyway, um, and certainly a famous painter, an Italian painter. But again, the voice of God in the chamber of Old Father Whitmer in Fayette, Seneca County. This is Doctrine and Covenant, section 128, verse 21, in Fayette, Seneca County, and at sundry times and in diverse places throughout all the travels and tribulations of this Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. By the way, the voice of God in the chamber of Old Father Whitmer in Fayette, Seneca County may or may not have been the voice of God originally giving uh, or pronouncing the Melchizedek priesthood upon uh, certain men in June of 1831. That was the original story, remember, before it got changed to Peter, James, and John. Nevertheless, going on in the next sentence in the same verse, and the voice of Michael, the archangel, the voice of Gabriel, and of Raphael, and of diverse angels for Michael or Adam down to the present time. Okay, and then it goes on and on because it's a long Where's verse. Where's that but, Raphael coming from? Well, I have no idea. It's a really strange thing. Because that's where it appears. It never appears before. It never appears after in LDS scripture. But it does appear in the, and it's not in the Bible either. Okay. But it is in the Apocrypha. And it's in, once again, the book of Tobit. The same book that had that lady who uh, sadly got married to seven uh, husbands. And each of them got killed by that demon on the wedding night. So let me see here if I can find this. Let me escape from that. Uh, yeah. It's in Tobit, chapter 12, verse 15. And let me see if I can find that here. I'm looking at it on a screen. I've got all these things here in my way. Uh, let's see, 12.15. 12.15, here it is. I'm going to read 14. I was sent to you to test you. This is Raphael to Tobit. I was sent to you to test you, and at the same time, God sent me to heal you. And Sarah, your daughter-in-law, remember Sarah? I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stand ready and enter before the glory of the Lord. So it's in the book of Tobit in the Apocrypha that Raphael is designated as one of the seven angels that appear before the Lord. Of course, Michael and Gabriel are two of the other angels, but they also appear in the regular Bible. So we have this interesting situation where we have Raphael appearing out of absolutely nowhere that we can tell in Doctrine and Covenants. It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. It appears as an angel in the Doctrine and Covenants, and it appears as an angel in the book of Tobit. I think the reliance on Tobit to come up with that name for an angel is pretty strong. Yeah. The The other thing, and just a note, maybe another piece of strength that would be a counterpoint to what you're saying, Backyard Professor is mentioning that the magic books that Joseph Smith had access to, for instance, I, I was looking behind me because... On my shelf, I have, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I'm going to say it's the Magus, M-A-G-U-S. Yeah. And it's the magic book that we know Joseph Smith had in his possession along around the same time he's doing all this treasure digging and folk magic stuff. And Backyard Professor is pointing out that Raphael is a big deal in that book as well. Oh, okay. Well, great. So, so. but not the Bible. Somewhere else. Mm -hmm. The Bible, a Bible. We've got a Bible, but the Bible doesn't mention anything about Raphael. 
Yeah. Just uh, so kind of to conclusion, I want to just note we've got the phone lines open. Uh, 662 Mormons with an S on the end, which is 662-667-6667. And you can dial in now, be on the show. We'll be happy to take your comments or questions. Um, my thoughts is that when we look at the Book of Mormon, there's enough evidence of multiple things being used from Joseph Smith's milieu. The uh, Book of Abraham has much of that as well. The Book of Moses has that. We absolutely know that the uh, revised Bible has that. And so the only other translation production that Joseph Smith did, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is the Kinderhook plates. And that he stops pretty quickly. But in the four that were finished to completion, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, obviously the Book of Commandments or Doctrine of Covenants as well, but um, that's kind of a different project on its own because Joseph is acknowledging he's speaking with a modern voice and um, it's not an ancient text. And uh, to have some overlap there, I don't think is as much of a concern. But the four translation productions I mentioned, uh, there is in each of them significant, and with the Bible translation, it is overwhelming that Joseph is borrowing thematic elements from his environment, and those elements make their way into those translation productions. Good point. Good point. Um, and then I just want to reiterate what I said in the beginning. I think Joseph Smith was brilliant and a genius and where I think credit is deeply uh, due is to acknowledge that whatever was going on there. And I don't believe in a, I don't believe in anything that was God given, but whatever did happen there, I think Joseph Smith did an incredible job of taking uh, just a, a, a plethora of things in his culture and mixing them into stories and in text that, uh, for the most part, are consistent in their geography, consistent in their timelines, consistent in the people who are having the experiences as characters in the text, and how he did that, I don't know. And I wouldn't apply a supernatural term of miraculous to it, but in a secular way, I do think it was miraculous. Right. And there are certain other things, of course, in the Book of Mormon that have obvious Bible parallels and uh, sometimes seem to want to one up the Bible stories. Noah has an ark in which he saves all the different animals and everything in the Book of Mormon. That becomes eight barges that the um, uh, the Jaredites have in the Bible. Paul has this miraculous conversion from being wicked and persecuting to being righteous by uh, an angelic appearance to him on the road to uh, Damascus. In the Book of Mormon, we have Alma the Younger and the four sons of Mosiah, right? Got to one up it. It seems like it's one up every time. Uh, but they have the same kind of encounter with an angel. Bam, they drop down. They were persecutors of the church. And then they come to, they're born again. And now they are totally good Mormons. Mm, mm, interesting. Um, I don't see any calls as of yet. I don't oh know if there's gosh. anything else. Anything else that you're kind of thinking? But if anybody does want to call in, the phone lines are completely empty. Uh, we could take, we've got a bank of three calls that we can take at a time. Well, it's been a while uh, since I read Maccabees, but it's very, very interesting. And of course, there's uh, the Maccabees was a family, sometimes called the Hasmonean dynasty, which is when Greek, or excuse me, Greece was the world power before Rome. This is in the, I think, the third century BCE that the Jewish nation 
said, we're not taking this crap anymore from you Greeks. We're going to stand up and we're going to fight for our rights. And to everyone's astonishment, not least of all the Greeks, they won. And it was just absolutely remarkable. And they were able to establish for a time a, an independent Israel against the power of the Greeks. But then Rome comes along and they get destroyed and wiped out. But this is very fresh in the Jewish memory. This is about as far in history from the time of Jesus as the revolution, uh, the revolutionary war is from us today in 2022. So it's about the same, same time period before. And this is why so many Jews really believed that if they stood up to Rome and had God's help, then God could do for them what he did for the Maccabee family. And he could establish an independent Israel, even against the power of Rome. Now that was tried several times. It never worked out, uh, certainly not in the long term, or not really even in the short term for the Jews, because they got crushed pretty bad every time they tried it. But this is something that that fired their hopes and made them look for messiahs who would fill this role of a military leader to establish an independent Israel. And many of those put those hopes in Jesus and those hopes were dashed as well when Jesus was crucified. There's a great story in Maccabees uh, and I can't remember who it is, but there's a, a very uh, interesting method of execution of somebody. I think it was a good guy too. It's like there's this giant frying pan put on a fire and they stretch this person out and bind him to the frying pan and they just kind of fry him alive. Mm. I I hope before you pass away, I hope they come up with the technology to take all the data in somebody's brain and upload it to a hard drive because I am continuously, I, I pride myself at least with Mormonism of knowing a lot of things and you just, uh, what you have inside your brain um, amazes me every episode that I've ever worked with you. So, well, you're very kind. If you'd read a story about a guy getting fried to death, I guarantee you'd remember it too. Maybe. I think you've forgotten more than I've ever learned. So. <laughs> I don't know, but the story is making me hungry for some reason. Yeah, look at that. Mm. Um, I, I will note, too, just one other thing in terms of plagiarisms. Uh, Brian Whitney, who is a scholar of Mormonism, oh, yeah. um, he worked for the church history uh, department as an assistant while he was getting his education, and his job was to sit down with the uh, sermons of the ministers contemporary to Joseph Smith. And I took a tour. Brian arranged for me to have a tour of the church history library. I met in person, uh, Mark Ash, uh, Ashurst McGee. Mm -hmm. I met, uh, Stephen Harper and uh, I forget there was a third person there and I don't remember his name, but I met him and he was a prominent historian as well. I was at Brian's desk as he was going through these books and I sat there for 20 minutes as he was doing it. And he just said, Bill, you would be in awe of how many similarities there were in the sermons of ministers of his day juxtaposed against the sermons of the characters of the Book of Mormon. Yes. And so that's another one. And Even then down to specific phrases, uh, like Song yes. of Redeeming Love is one. Very much. By, by the way, some. Uh, I'm sorry, I think I, that last comment uh, that was put up there and was since taken down about Judith and about all the historical inaccuracies in Judith, yes, the book of Judith. I was rereading it and doing a little more research in preparation for tonight's show. Uh, it's like the different cities that she talks about or that, that are talked about in the book of Judith. You know, 
they don't even know what they are. They're guessing where they might be. And it seems very strange in a number of respects. But some scholars think that Judith got her name as a reflection or an echo of Judas Maccabee, who was one of the Maccabees who mm. threw off Greece. Yeah. And yeah, it seems like there's that connection. That's, that's cool. That's an it was Paul fact. A. Douglas, there he is, who made that comment. And I just wanted Love to it. add that. Love it. Love it. We've got two phone calls in the queue. The first one is the backyard professor. Uh, Carrie, what do you got for us tonight, my friend? Hey, guys. How you doing? How are you doing, Carrie? Are you working on you. Sunday show? I, I am. I really am. I've got some good stuff. Uh, some clown named Dan Bogle wrote a good book, and I can't stop talking about it. <laughs> no, I... Uh, I just want to say, <laughs> I just want to say seriously, uh, tonight's show just really blows me away. I, I really had no idea that that it, it granted it's a numerous amount of parallels with Judith and the Book of Mormon, but like Bill has pointed out, the the conceptual idea ideas involved in those parallels with the number uh, i can't help it that seems impressive now yes hugh nibley was accused of parallelomania so you guys are probably going to hear that from mormons who bother to watch this but i'm serious i learned a lot of cool stuff tonight so i just wanted to call and say thanks this had to have taken you quite a bit of work to do and I know in the chat, there's been several of us saying uh, just wow. So way to go. Another fantastic show. I love watching this show. I love being in the chat group. I love being associated with you guys. This is just spectacular. So thank you. Good show. Carrie, I, I, think it, I think it was about uh, a half an hour on my part, probably a half an hour on RFM's part, and about three hours on Maven's part. So I think yeah, she, she yeah. put the all, work in. All you guys. All you, yes, yeah, give credit to Maven too. I, I love that little gal. She's awesome. Yeah. She refuses to be a polygamous wife of mine, and I can't blame her, but still, she's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Let's hope they never bring the everlasting covenant back, you know? Oh, yes, I know, right? Ooh. Not to mention the everlasting gobstop. On the other hand, it would really give us, <laughs> it would give us great podcasts, all yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank right, you, my you guys. Friend. Thank you again. I'll see, I'll see you on Sunday. Okay. Okay. And that's Sunday at 6 p.m. Mountain Time when Kerry Schertz is the Backyard Professor presents his live podcast dealing with the Book of Abraham and his ongoing love affair with Dan Vogel. Awesome. Have a great day, Kerry. <laughs> Good way to put it. I love that, man. <laughs> Take it easy. All right. And then we've got uh, Sam. Sam is on the line. Sam, you're on Mormonism Live. What's on your mind tonight? Sam. Hey. Uh, you guys have just been talking about similarities from different works in Joseph Smith's day. Right. And uh, one that I think is really cool is um, The Late War. Um, have, have either of you guys read that? Well, we were just talking about it tonight, my friend. Okay, I didn't catch all the shows. Yeah, no biggie. We, we talked about it early on, but there were a lot of a lot of overlapping phrases and quotes in that as well. 
you talk about the uh, gray hairs being laid down in the grave? Mm -mm. No. There's there's a, a part in the late war that says um, the infirmities of his age gave weakened uh, uh, have weakened his understanding. Therefore, let his gray hairs go down into the grave in silence. Mm, so that's like um, what Lehi says, a part right? In the Book of Mormon. Yeah, you know the part that I'm talking about. Mm. It has the same so phrase to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just about the exact. Well, I think it gets laid down in a watery grave because they're on the ocean, but kind of the same poetic language. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I think I think the overlap at least yeah. should give us pause. It, it, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, thank I you. I assume you guys also talked about. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. All right, and uh, that is it. I don't have any more calls in the queue, so we can call it a night. We got to eight o'clock anyway. Anything else from URFM? Uh, well, just First Nephi eighteen eighteen. Because of their grief and much sorrow and the iniquity of my brethren, they were brought near even to be carried out of this time, talking about his parents, Nephi and uh, Lehi and Sarai, to meet their God. Yea, their gray hairs were about to be brought down to lie low in the dust. Yea, even they were near to be cast with sorrow into a watery grave because they are on the ocean. Mm, so there you go. So at the end of it, I guess we can we can decide to take the reasonable route and see that Joseph Smith is, at least in instances, plagiarizing, in other instances, perhaps using common themes of his day. Or I guess our other option is... Give Brother Joseph a break.